prayer, and then we'll jump into the lesson. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we give you praise and, and honor this morning as the sovereign creator of all and sustainer of all things. You hold everything perfectly in your, in your wisdom and, and providence, and we're just so thankful for that as your creatures. And we do ask as we think about these, this hard topic of your sovereignty and our responsibility, um, that you would give us clarity and understanding of how these uh, two truths coexist with each other. And we know that they do because they're revealed in, in your word, which is perfect, and we're just so thankful for it. We pray that we would submit our lives under your word, that it would be the guide of our lives. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to continue our study through the topic of evangelism. And today we're going to get really into the, the theology of evangelism. And we're going to be, do that by focusing on this really important discussion. It's also really popular. And that is the relationship between God's sovereignty, specifically his control over whom will be saved, and evangelism, or our proclamation of the gospel. And first, I think it'd be helpful just to recap, um, to think through what evangelism is, or what I've argued evangelism is so far in this study. So as I've said in previous weeks, evangelism is the task given to all of God's people, regardless of of context or, or culture, where Christians can communicate the message of the gospel using, using words, proclaiming and, and teaching the truth of God's salvation for sinners through the sending of His Son, Jesus. And remember, by the necessity of the message um, and content of the gospel, it, it demands, it commands a response from all people. So so as J.I. Packer says, he says, the gospel message begins with information and always ends with an invitation. The information concerns God's work of making His Son a perfect Savior for sinners, and the invitation is God's summons to mankind generally to come to the Savior for life, to find life. And we do this act of evangelism because God calls all men everywhere to repent and and trust the promises of forgiveness and everlasting life. So we then, as Christians, go into the world, we, we engage with the lost, and we try to persuade them. We try to persuade them to, to believe in this gospel. And we do so, we do this persuasion as, as Christ's representatives, or, or we could say as his ambassadors in this age. We, we herald the word of God, and we summons the lost to, to repent and believe in Christ. And so our duty then, our, our job as, as Christ's ambassadors is to, out of our love for neighbor, our, our love for the lost, and our, and our duty to our Lord, our duty to our King, 
We proclaim this message. We proclaim the only message that saves. So here's Packer again. It's evangelism is our abiding responsibility. It is a basic part. It is a basic part of our Christian calling. And so that is, in essence, what, what I'm putting forward in this study of what evangelism is. And then comes a very important question that we need to think through. How is all that, what I just said, how is our, our responsibility to proclaim the good news affected by our belief in the sovereignty of God? Before we can answer that question specifically about, about evangelism, we first need to think about the relationship between God's sovereignty and, and human responsibility more generally. Charles Spurgeon, he was once asked if he could reconcile divine sovereignty with human responsibility, and he replied in his witty, typical witty, masterful way, he said, I wouldn't try to. I never reconcile friends. And the reason this response from Spurgeon is so powerful is because on the surface, it does seem pretty apparent that these two truths, God's complete and exhaustive control over all things, sovereignty, and man's ability to choose and our, our own responsibility for our actions, those two truths seem to stand in opposition to each other. But they are, if thought about carefully, friends, as Spurgeon would say. Two truths that the Bible holds up simultaneously without reservation or contradiction. So they exist in, in perfect harmony with each other due to, to God's infinite wisdom and purposes. Now where this is controversial for us and throughout the the, the church, the history of the church is in the realm of salvation particularly. So I would affirm, we would affirm that, that the Bible teaches that God is sovereign over salvation, meaning it is God that is the, the principal agent or, or controlling factor for our conversion or, and salvation. And yet, we, we as humans are called to exercise our will and to believe on the Lord Jesus to be saved, to, to repent, to submit to Jesus as Savior and Lord. So you, you notice there's human agency, human actions, human choices. And J.I. Packer, and I'm telling you, I'm, I'm, I'm getting so much of this from J.I. Packer's book. Um, oh, how do I not remember the name? Bobby, you know the name. Not Knowing God. The one I've recommended, <laughs> Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God, literally the name of this title, okay. Uh, um, but I'm going to be using J.I. Packer quite a bit. Um, but his book d does something that I think is, is clever and helpful for us. He, he begins his book by actually saying he's not initially going to try to convince any Christian of God's sovereignty and conversion or salvation, he's not going to do that because he argues every Christian already believes this whether they recognize it or not. And he proves this in two ways. So first, he argues that all Christians give God thanks for their salvation and conver conversion. 
And the reason we do this is we know that God is, is the one who, who saves. We can't, in our own power, in our own ability, in our own strength, make ourselves born again. It's the whole point of Jesus' discourse with, with Nicodemus and John 3. God, by his Spirit alone, brings new life to the believer, brings conversion. So when we think of our, our salvation and we're praising God for it, we all say something like, thank you, God, for saving me. Right? We don't say, thank you, Ryan, for making such a wonderful choice, or thank you, self, for, for making this happen. God is, is the, the principal factor in our salvation. Or we don't, or, or should never say something as presumptuous as dividing the credit for, for salvation between God and our, ourselves. And again, I think Packer here, he's being, when you read it, I think he's being a little cheeky, but, but his point shouldn't go unnoticed. We give, and we, we must do this, we give God the glory for our salvation and conversion, and by doing that, we recognize whether we, we verbalize it this way or not, we recognize God's sovereignty or divine grace to save us. The, 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 the second way Packer says all Christians recognize God's sovereignty in conversion is that we, we pray to God for the conversion of others. We pray to God for the conversion of others. And that Christians, when we pray for the salvation of others, typically... Do not ask God to simply bring people to the point where they can save themselves independently of God. That would be a, a very odd prayer, right? No, we, we actually pray that, that God would save that person, that God would open their eyes, that God would, would soften their heart, that God would give them new life. So who's the principal agent in, in, in conversion and all those prayers? God, yes, God. So when most Christians pray, at least the ones that I've heard pray in my life, for the salvation of the lost, we do so with the built-in assumption that it is God's power, God's sovereign power to bring them to faith. Packer gives a a summary quote that I'm going to read aloud. Um, He says, The situation is not what it seems to be. For it is not true that some Christians believe in divine sovereignty while others hold an opposite view. What is true is that all Christians believe in divine sovereignty, but some are not aware that they do and mistakenly imagine and insist that they reject it. So I I find this argument from Packer, although I think it could be viewed as maybe snarky or belittling. I don't, think, if you, I don't think that's his intent at all, um, but I find his argument to be helpful and, and pretty persuasive. And though Packer assumes this in his book, there is a, a massive amount of biblical evidence of God's sovereignty over all things, including salvation and conversion. He's in complete control of every single thing that occurs in his creation. And even including the, the conversion of the law. So think of places like Ephesians 1.11 or, or the whole of Romans chapter 9. 
This is the, I, I would say, the, the clear teaching of the New Testament. And this all again gets to the heart of the question we're seeking to answer this morning. If, if everything in the creation is under the direct control of God, and God has already fixed or decreed the future of who will be saved, what does this do to our duty to evangelize? Our, our responsibility to evangelize and proclaim the gospel? And as you might expect, Christians have answered the, this question differently over the years. And there, there, there have been bright spots and, and errors in our thinking. Some hold God's sovereignty so highly, and really I would argue that they, they don't actually hold it highly, they just neglect other complementing truths found in scriptures about man's responsibility. But those that err in this way, typically, they don't see the need to emphasize evangelism, or even they, they neglect to evangelize, because they believe God is going to save whom he's going to save, regardless of what you or I do, or regardless of what any humans do. Now, another error some Christians make, I think in response to that error, is to think and start to teach that any emphasis on God's sovereignty, any teaching on God's control or, or sovereignty and salvation will inevitably or always lead to inaction and evangelism. So they don't teach about God's sovereignty because they're afraid that it's going to lead their people to not do anything, to do what the first error did. So there are some Christian leaders and pastors who argue like we, we, we can't, articulate the truths of God's sovereignty or God's being the sovereign agent over salvation because if we were to do, do so, and this is in writing, it would say it would lead to the death of evangelism. To do so would lead to the death of evangelism. And I'll say both of these are errors, pretty serious errors in, in theology and practice. So what is the, the answer to this apparent tension that Scripture itself is presenting to us? And really, it, the answer is quite simple. Packer gives two responses that he argues is, is the biblical response, response to the question of God's sovereignty and election and evangelism. So he gives us first one negative principle and then one positive principle. So that would be kind of the two main things we'll be looking at. Um, but first, any questions, comments, concerns? Yeah, that's definitely, that definitely exists out there as a response to a high view of God's sovereignty, which Packer does address. I think we'll address that for sure. You can see, use the same argument. All right, let's go to this first statement, um, which is the, the, the negative principle that Packer articulates. It's this. God's sovereignty over salvation, God's sovereignty over salvation does not affect anything we have already said about the nature and duty of evangelism in this series. God's sovereignty over salvation does not affect anything we've already seen about evangelism. And the theological principle undergirding the statement 
from Packer is from the distinction we need to make between what is sometimes called God's revealed will, will or his, his perceptive will and God's secret or, or hidden will. So a simple way to think about this is that there are certain things God chooses to keep to himself. For instance, the timing of the end of this age. It's not revealed to us. It's, it's hidden, you see. Or, or the number and the identity of the elect or those that, that will be saved. That hidden secret will will have, this is the big key, God's hidden and secret will will have or should not have any bearing on God's revealed will or his declarative will. So which includes most fundamentally God's word to us and God's law that we see in his word in the scriptures. And God's hidden will is not relevant in our interpreting of any part of God's law and, and commands that he gives to his people. That belongs to, to God's revealed will and his word. So, so practically, this means that the number and the identity of the elect are a part of God's secret, God's, God's hidden will, and therefore they, they have no bearing or that, that their identity has no bearing on our duty given to us by God and his revealed will and his word. And so Packer and I, we would argue that evangelism is a part of God's law given to New Testament Christians or, or God's perceptive will for his people that we can perceive through his word. And so evangelism, we could say, then belongs to God's revealed will for his people. And so God's revealed will cannot ever, never, it, it cannot in the slightest degree be affected by the outcome of God's sovereign choice to elect a people for himself through saving them. Because that is hidden to us as creatures. It's kind of a simple distinction, maybe some words you're not familiar with, but it's a really important distinction we have to make theologically. God's hidden will has no bearing on God's commands for us to proclaim the gospel. And kind of with this theological principle then in mind, as, as the foundation to sort out this tension of God's sovereignty and evangelism. Packer says four very practical truths that we need to then affirm about both evangelism and sovereign grace. And the first of those is that the belief in God's sovereignty over salvation does not affect the necessity of evangelism. The belief in God's sovereignty over salvation does not affect the necessity of evangelism. And the reason for this is because the truth of God's sovereignty doesn't negate the fact that God uses means to accomplish his purposes. The, the Westminster Confession of Faith is, is helpful here, I think. In chapter 5 on Providence, we see it affirmed that God is the great creator of all things and does uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures, actions, and things from the greatest even to the least by, by his most wise and holy providence. So here we just see a clear declaration of God's sovereign control over everything. This is called, right, this is called providence. 
And then later in point 5.3 point of the statement, it says, God in his ordinary providence, the way he, he, he ordinarily brings about his will, makes use of means. God in his ordinary providence makes use of means, yet is free to work without, above, and against them at his pleasure. So the, the ordinary way of God, the ordinary way God is working out his plans and decrees in creation is through specific means, through means, or, or you could say specific actions, human actions. And this is not just something the Westminster Confession just made up out of thin air. It's exactly what we see in Scripture. It's what we see in, in the New Testament, in Romans 10, which you can open up there. We, we just had a sermon on it a few weeks ago, but it's a very important passage in this debate. So Romans 10, verses 12 through 17, we can kind of see the means of saving faith. Paul writes, For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how are they to call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel, for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. So what we see here is that, that everyone that calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And God's way of saving sinners is to bring them to faith, to, to bring faith through, through bringing them in contact, we could say, with the gospel, with the gospel through its verbal proclamation. So in God's revealed will, we're going back to those two categories we just talked about, revealed and, and hidden will. In God's revealed will, in his word, in his ordering of things, evangelism is a necessity for salvation, if anyone is to be saved. Or we could say that evangelism is the means by which God brings people to faith. So in that way, regardless of what we believe of God's sovereignty and salvation, we must affirm that what is so clear for us in Scripture, that evangelism is, is necessary for the Christian to do. It's necessary in the Christian life because it's the appointed means God has chosen to bring his gospel to the nations, to all people, to every tribe, tongue, and nation. So we can say evangelism is necessary. Our view of God's sovereignty does not affect our view of the necessity of evangelism. Second point. The second belief that we need to affirm regarding God's sovereignty is that it doesn't affect the urgency of evangelism. It doesn't affect the urgency of evangelism. These are all quite similar to each other, but the reality and the, the, the fact of the matter is that people without Christ, people that are not in Christ, are lost. And God's word declares to us very clearly that if they die, they will go to hell. 
It's exactly what Jesus says in Luke 13, 3. It says, unless you repent, you all will likewise perish. You all will likewise perish. And we who are in Christ, sent by our King, right? we're as ambassadors of God's kingdom, we have the only message, the only gospel that will save those that are lost and presently perishing. And so one question we can ask when thinking about the lost is this. Is their need urgent? Is that a pressing need? Someone can say the answer, yes. Of course, the answer is yes, that is an urgent need. And there's really no other answer. And so if we carry the message, we, we carry the only message that will save them, does that not make evangelism urgent? And I think, again, the answer is clearly yes. Packer gives a helpful illustration here. He says, if you knew that a man was asleep in a blazing building, you would think it a matter of urgency to try and get to him, wake him, and bring him out. The world is full of people who are unaware that they stand under the wrath of God. Is it not similarly a matter of urgency that we should go to them, try to awaken them, and show them the way of escape? I think this is a really powerful, it's a, it's a very helpful illustration for us to think about the, the urgency of the, the call to evangelize. And our, the key here is, is our understanding, our belief upon God's sovereignty over salvation doesn't change that urgency. Because there seems to be a temptation to, to lessen the urgency of evangelism because we, we reason that if a person is not elect, if a person's not part of the chosen by God, then, then they'll never believe our gospel proclamation anyways, and our efforts to convert them will always fail. Which is true in one sense. But since the identity of God's elect people is part of the hidden things of God something we will never know in this life, it should make no difference. Literally, it should make zero difference in our action or urgency to evangelize. Because we don't know who will be saved or who will perish. So we shouldn't discriminate on who hears the gospel based on our judgment of if they are elect or not. Most fundamentally, the people who, who fall into this error of, of wrong-headed thinking, I would say, and they fall into this error because it's always wrong to not do what the Lord calls us to do. And the Lord clearly calls us to, to share the gospel freely with all, urgently. The third truth Packer says we should affirm regarding God's sovereignty over salvation and evangelism is that it does not affect the genuineness of gospel invitations. The truth of God's sovereignty over salvation does not affect the genuineness of gospel invitations. You know, one thing you, you will hear from some folks with a very high view of God's sovereignty is that we shouldn't invite folks or offer a free offer of salvation to, to repent and believe in the gospel because it's all settled anyways. It's settled business. There's no point in doing it. It's a similar mistake that we've been seeing throughout, right? 
But Packer hopefully argues that the, the offer of the gospel of Christ and the promise of justification and everlasting life is to everyone who calls on the name of the Lord. So God commands and demands all men everywhere, all men everywhere, to repent of their sin and, and wickedness and, and come to Christ to find mercy. That is the, the call on every single human's life. And so the invitation, therefore, is for all sinners, every single one. And no one, no person is ever shut out from the mercy of God who, who desires to be, who wants God's mercy, who desires it. Only those who reject the gospel in unbelief and refuse to repent of their sins will be cast away eternally. So in the sense, everybody that wants to be saved that has a true desire in their heart to turn from their sin and trust and submit to, to Christ, everybody who has that desire will be saved as they call on the name of the Lord and their heart is turned. And by implication, then, we can genuinely offer the call of salvation to all men, again, without discrimination, without reservation. Again, Packer's really helpful here. You see why I almost just quoted the whole book. I almost just read the book to you. This is a, a more lengthy quote, so follow with me. Packer writes, Some fear that the doctrine of eternal election and reprobation involves the possibility that Christ will not receive some of those who desire to receive him because they're not elect. The comfortable words of the gospel promises, however, absolutely exclude this possibility. As our Lord elsewhere affirmed in emphatic and categorical terms, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. It's John 6, 37. So just to summarize a bit, it is 100% true that God has from all eternity chosen whom will be saved and, and who will not. And it is true that Christ came to save those from, the, from whom the Father has given him. A, a select, an elect group of people. But it is also just as much true that Christ offers himself freely to all men as Savior and promises to bring glory to everyone and anyone who trusts in him as Savior. We good? We tracking? Okay. Questions, comments? All right, the fourth. Oh, Rob. Yeah, that's exactly right. We have to be very careful with the words that we're saying to the non-believers and not over-promising them something that isn't true of them. Yeah, helpful. All right, the fourth uh, principle we need to affirm regarding divine sovereignty and evangelism is that our belief in God's sovereignty over salvation does not affect the responsibility of the sinner for his reaction to the gospel. It does not affect the responsibility of the sinner for his reaction to the gospel. So again, though it's true that God has elected some people for salvation, it is still man who rejects Christ, which is his own cause and or his own cause of his own condemnation. 
So the sin of unbelief in the Bible, the way you can think about this really generally, the sin of unbelief in the Bible is always the responsibility of the human. Always. Therefore, unbelievers can never excuse themselves from responding to the gospel call of repentance by saying, well, I'm just not part of the chosen. I'm just not part of the elect. Because again, though that may be true in a certain sense, it doesn't absolve them of their own responsibility in sin of unbelief. They will be held accountable for that sin and their persistent non-repentance. J.C. Ryle, I've always found this quote to be very helpful. Um, Ryle has an extremely helpful quote here. He says, Everywhere in Scripture, it is a leading principle that if a man is lost, at last it will be his own fault, and his blood will be on his own head. The same inspired Bible which reveals the doctrine of election is the Bible which contained the words, Why will you die, O house of Israel? So another way to think about, about the same thing, maybe in different language, is that the Bible never says that someone misses out on heaven because they, they weren't a part of the elect, or even though that, that is a theologically true statement. Right? It's a true statement, but it's not the, the Bible's emphasis. The Bible's language, right, according to Packer, is that they, they miss heaven because they choose to neglect the great free offer of salvation, freely offered to them, and because they refuse in their own will and their own facilities to repent and believe because of their hardness of heart and sin. So all of that, those four points, I should have had a slide, okay, I, I admit. All of those four points are under the first category, or the first main point of uh, God's, the truth of God's sovereignty over salvation does not affect anything we've said about evangelism so far. Any responsibility that we have as Christians about evangelism. And so this leads to Packer's second main point. So we're going to the next slide for you visual people. Second main point, um, which is a positive implication of these truths. Okay, good. Second main point is this. Second principle. Is that the sovereignty of God... And salvation, or you say the sovereignty of God over salvation, actually gives us our only hope of success in evangelism. The sovereignty of God over salvation gives us our only hope for success in evangelism. And so really the charge that we've seen so far, that, that God's sovereignty leads to the death of evangelism, Right? That's the claim made by some, that God's sovereignty leads to the death of evangelism. In reality, I would argue, it's actually the exact opposite. The sovereignty of God is the only thing that makes evangelism not pointless, not completely fruitless, meaningless. Because it's only with the sovereignty of God over salvation that we can have certainty, we can have absolute certainty that, that our evangelism will be fruitful. And therefore, apart from God's sovereignty, it would be a completely worthless thing for us to spend our time on, a pointless endeavor for us to engage in. Packer writes, were it not for the sovereign grace of God, evangelism would be the most futile and useless enterprise that the world has ever seen. And there would be no more complete waste of time under the sun to preach the Christian gospel. 
Again, Packer likes to use this, this really strong rhetoric, rhetoric but it, it, and hard words, but they're very true. And re there's reasons that this is true. And that is because of the reality of, of one word, sin. Fallen man has a, a blinded mind and is unable to grasp spiritual truth. 1 Corinthians 2.14. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, The natural person, so I think that, that's the, the fallen man, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for their folly to him. And he's unable to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. So fallen, unregenerate man, that, that those that are lost are unable to understand spiritual truth because of their, their sin nature. They don't have the ability. Romans 8, 7 through 8. Paul says here, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it can't. It cannot. Those who are in the flesh can't please God. So in these verses from Paul, we see both of the verses, we see that that natural sinful man can't please God or submit to God's law because his, his mind... His, his will, it's hostile to God. It's set against God. So both of these texts together, right? 1 Corinthians 2.14 and Romans 8, 7-8 show us that fallen man, fallen humanity is both ethically opposed to God and blind, literally blind in understanding the truth in their minds, spiritual, spiritual truth in their minds. And so, I think we can say, pretty simply, that the lost are in terrible shape. Enmity against God is our nature in Adam, in fallen man. And therefore, it's instinctive, it's, it's part of the nature of fallen man, it's instinctive to suppress and deny God's truth, and to not submit to God's law, to reject God's law. And this is what Paul would call being dead in their trespasses and sins in Ephesians 2.1. This is what it means to be dead, spiritually dead, and it's the case for all that are lost. So again, it's a massively serious condition, a grave condition. Fallen man is what Packer calls, calls wholly incapacitated, wholly incapacitated for any positive reaction to God's word. Deaf to God's speech, blind to God's special revelation. So it's as if when we're evangelizing that we're talking to a corpse. That's the visual, I think, that we should have. Someone that is spiritually dead, so numb, so blind, that the only description that Paul could have to describe someone like that is dead. And right, that's not even to mention the, the, the truth that Satan is presently active to keep sinners in their natural state, to deceive people not to submit to God's law, to stay ignorant of God's truth. So the obstacles to evangelism are massive. Those are the, the state of natural sinful man and their natural tendency, their instinctive tendency to oppose God, all things of God, 
and even Satan's deception of sinful man. We have massive opponents, massive opponents in our evangelism. And all this means is evangelism cannot possibly succeed without the power and work of God to save. If the person sitting across from us in evangelism is a dead corpse, then what do we need? We need someone to bring that corpse to life, to to breathe new life into that person. Packer writes, however clear and cognate we may be in presenting the gospel, we have no hope of convincing or converting anyone. Can you or I, by our earnest talking, break the power of Satan over a man's life? No. Can you and I give life to the spiritually dead? No. Can we hope to convince sinners of the truth of the gospel by patient explanation done in our own power? No. Regarded as a merely human enterprise. So, great word. Regarded as a merely human enterprise, evangelism is a hopeless task. And Packer's point, right, is very simple but really profound for us. Evangelism without the power of God to save can't produce, cannot produce the desired effect unless there is another principal factor in salvation. Other than the human agent, then the condition of sinful man is such all of our evangelistic efforts will fail and always fail. And thankfully, as we've seen this morning, there is another factor in our evangelism. There's another factor in conversion, namely that we are not the ones that save others, but individuals are only saved by God's sovereign grace to bring dead hearts to life by his, by his power. For God does what man can't do. God works through his spirit, through his word, or by his spirit, through his word, and the hearts of sinful man to bring them to repentance and faith through our words, through our proclaiming of the gospel. So faith, then, is fundamentally a gift from God. Again, Packer, you and I cannot make sinners repent and believe in Christ by our words alone, but God works faith and repentance in men's hearts by his Holy Spirit. So it is ultimately good news that God is sovereign over salvation. And this truth that the sovereignty of God over salvation is our only hope for success in evangelism should lead us to have extreme confidence in our evangelism, extreme confidence when we proclaim the gospel. Because it's God alone who saves and who promises that he will save the lost. And so we're going to talk a little bit here about how... how how this confidence can look in our life. But first, any comments, questions? Jerry. Mm-hmm. Some of this is going to come down to your belief on that doctrine of what, what's sometimes called limited atonement, um, of the, the, extent to, the extent to which Christ's death... Um, oh, man, words are escaping me. Uh, to the extent to which Christ's death uh, is, f- who is it for? Thank you. Um, who is it effective for? So there are some who would say, because we believe that it is um, 
only effect, efficacious, effective for the elect, then Christ died for only those people, those that will be saved. Others reject that view and say, no, Christ died for all without reservation effectively. Um, and so because of that distinction, I think Rob is saying we need to be careful not to give uh, the impression of the second view, that Christ's death is effective for all people, even those that will not repent and believe. But since we don't, you can't have the new revived Yeah. That, that's a good, no, that's a great question. John, you got... Sorry, no. Yes. And I think to your first question, there's, I think there's quite a bit of freedom... I think that's kind of what John was getting. There's, there's, there should be a lot of freedom for us not to be paralyzed by saying something that doesn't fully submit to the Westminster Confession of Faith or what, whatever. Um, but I do think there are some helpful things. Like One thing that I've found to be helpful is just to say, to offer the free gospel of salvation to someone, you could say something like, God has died to save his people, and that could be you, right, if you make this decision for Christ, something like that, right? That you're still offering um, the gospel to him or her. Um, but that's, that's definitely something we're going to touch on here in future weeks of how it works out practically. Um, but that's a really, really good question. Candace. Yes. Yeah, that's really helpful. Thank you. I'm going to move us on. Sorry, guys. We're going to, let's talk about the, uh, the confidence that we should have in our evangelism because of the truth and God's sovereignty. So first, it should make us, and we can revisit this because we might finish this here quickly, so you hold on to those questions. But first is that it should make us um, bold in our evangelism. It should make us bold in our evangelism and that we shouldn't feel the task of evangelism is overly daunting, especially when people first reject the gospel. So when we, when we proclaim it, it shouldn't shock us when people reject the gospel or even are offended by what we're saying. Right? This is, I think this should actually be the expected response from those that are, are slaves to sin, who, who stand in ethical opposition to God. And rejection then shouldn't discourage us. Because no heart, right, because of the truth of God's sovereignty and salvation, no heart is too hard, no heart is too far gone that God is incapable of saving. God can save whomever he wants, and no matter how, how hate-filled or, or hard-hearted someone may appear to us when we proclaim the gospel. Because we know, right, that nothing is impossible with the Lord. He can save those whom we, we deem as unsavable. And I'm sure there are people in your life, if you think about it right now, that you're saying, there's just no way. God can save that person. Therefore, I think we should be very bold in our proclamation. We shouldn't grow discouraged with people's negative response, and we should be bold knowing that the, the message we carry actually is the only thing that will save people from the punishment of their sin. And so we have every reason then, knowing that, that our God is in complete control of all things and, and who will save those who receive the gospel message in faith, 
We have every reason then to proclaim it with supreme confidence, proclaim it boldly. Not like the, I think the common impediment to evangelism, at least for me, is a fear of man, a fear of their response. Right? This, the, a high view of God's sovereignty and salvation dissolves that fear. Doesn't make it go away. You still have to work, you still have to fight, you still have to pray and act out in faith to be bold and proclaim. Second principle is that our confidence and evangelism because of God's sovereignty should make us patient in our evangelism, should make us patient in our evangelism. This is echoing just what Jerry said. Because God is sovereign over whom he will save, it means we can be patient with our evangelistic efforts because we need to remember God saves in his own timing. And we shouldn't think that he is in the the same hurry as us. It's typically how we think. Or that his timing always matches our desired timing. So it could be, and I would argue it's most likely will take meeting after meeting after meeting, teaching after teaching, slowly and patiently unpacking the gospel for a sinner to repent and believe. That's the typical pattern. And as Jerry said, it's kind of a planting seeds. It's the watering, the planting of seeds and the watering. That's how God typically saves and here's why this, this is big. This flies in the face of so many modern evangelistic strategy, which emphasize results in a specific time frame, results in a quick time frame. There's a massive number of evangelism curriculum that I've read in print right now that advocate for this type of quick, easy gospel proclamation strategies. But in reality, the lack of results in a quick time frame doesn't indicate anything about our faithfulness or even our effectiveness in evangelism. Packer, again, very helpful here, as he argues that the idea that a single, a single evangelical sermon or, or, or conversation, evangelistic conversation or lesson, will lead someone to, to faith, the idea that one, a one-shot stop will be effective over time, Packer would say is just downright silly. Because it's typically not how humans come to faith as we analyze history, as we analyze the modern day. And if someone does receive Christ after one gospel conversation or sermon, it's most likely that his or her heart was already prepared by, by Christian teaching and witness before the moment of his or her repentance. The soil was fertile. And I say typically because God obviously can save whomever he wants, whenever he wants, no matter the, the, the ripeness of the heart or the exposure to Christian teaching. But it is the typical pattern. And so I think that should, that should encourage us to be patient, not to, um, that it takes people a longer time to come to faith. And so with this in mind, right, we should be, obviously, patient in our evangelistic efforts. Of course, I do think Scripture gives us the allowance and the, the warning that there are times when we should not waste our time on someone and who's overtly obstinate, hostile to the things of God. That takes wisdom to discern. That's why doing this in community would be very helpful. You can get different perspectives from brothers and sisters on the state of that person. But generally speaking, I think it's a good principle, generally speaking, we should be very 
very patient in our evangelistic efforts. As conversation may be after years and years, I've heard stories of decades of just faithful conversations, decades of faithful teaching for conversion to happen. And we need to trust that God is using each conversation. He's using each time we, we open the Bible with that non-believer, each time we're, we're teaching the gospel in various ways, God is using that for his purposes. His word does not come back void. And again, remember that this truth is rooted in our belief and our understanding that God is in the sovereign one who's in control over whom he will save. It allows us, it frees us up to be patient. All right, last thing. The, the last way Packer says our confidence in God's sovereignty should impact us is that it should lead us to be prayerful in our evangelism. It should lead us to be prayerful in our evangelism. Because if we know that it is principally God alone who saves sinners, then it is God alone whom we should be crying out to, who we should be praying to, asking him to save the souls of the lost. Right? If we know that it is not in our own power that we save, then we need to be consulting the one who does right, in prayer. So in our evangelism, we're impotent in our own power to, to save anyone. We depend fully on God to move and, and make our words effective. And the logic then is pretty simple why we would need to come to God, who is our only hope of success in evangelism. Because we need God. We need God desperately. So we must pray to him in that desperation to bring dead hearts to life, to bring newness of life. And what is it that we should pray? pray? Packer writes, we should pray for those whom we seek to win. We should pray that the, the Holy Spirit will open their hearts. We should pray for ourselves and our own witness. We, we, should, we should pray for all who preach the gospel that the power and authority of the Spirit may rest on them. So we must, as, as God's people, we must pray in our evangelistic efforts right, to, for God's blessing. Now, that's all I have for us this morning. I finally ended on time. Um, any final comments or questions? Next week we're going to talk about the relationship between our evangelism and the local church and how these work together. Dick. That's right. Most fundamentally, it's in God's word. It's revealed to us as a command that we, should, we must do. Therefore, we must do it. That could be the whole lesson. Praise <laughs> the Lord. Mm -hmm. That's encouraging. Well, we are dismissed. Thank you for the involvement.